Archdiocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, this is Dr. Chris Bergwald, and welcome to this edition of Prayer Rome Companion. In this episode, we'll be continuing the Faith for Life presentation, Why We Do What We Do at Mass, given by Father Joseph Fox, who is a Dominican with the St. Joseph Province in the United States. I hope you enjoy this episode, and may God bless you. I uh, mentioned I teach in, in Detroit. Uh, I do graduate uh, courses as well. And there are about 12 priests from different parts of the world that are in my class. And one of them was very proud to say, Last Sunday, I used Munus in my homily. (laughs) I'm not so sure that his congregation was as happy. But... But I want to throw out to you that this word munus, it's a Latin word, okay, used by Latin-speaking peoples in ancient times up, you'll find it in the literature. Liturgy, what you see in Canon 834, is taken from the Greek word that means the exact same thing. Okay? Liturgy is the Greek, taken from the Greek word, that means the exact same thing as munus. Very early on, it got used in a rather exclusive way in the cultic context of worship. Okay? Another word taken from the Greek, that means the exact same thing, is charism. Now, you're going to see a lot of that after the Second Vatican Council talking about these two things. And for those more Pentecostal types, we hear about charisms all the time. We also, you can see in the literature... And the history of the church, you know, since the Second Vatican Council, a lot of theologians have tried to contrast the institutional church with the charismatic church. Well, you can imagine that once finding out what munus is all about, and charism means the exact same thing, uh, that contrast doesn't work very well. But they built up quite a feeling about those being very different. But they mean the same thing. It's still a public task or function performed by a citizen on behalf of the community as one who was called up and commissioned to do something. Are you with me? The tendency is to like to kind of say, well, the Holy Spirit has designated me in a kind of direct way. Except that our understanding of the church, our understanding of Jesus, 
is that he works through the church. So a lot of times we may have talents and gifts, and maybe it would have been better because people like to see this charism as really being a talent, something that I have a native ability for, something I enjoy doing and am competent to do, often gets confused with the charism. Because, you know, sometimes the community, through its legal structures, its authority structures, will ask someone to do something that they don't have a talent for. For example, the American people can choose a president that just doesn't quite cut the mustard or a governor, or a representative, or a senator. Do you follow me? The charism being chosen to perform that function, to perform that public task, was done by the people who were deputed to do that. They depute these people to do the task, and you find out, well, they really don't have the talent. Okay, try again. You know, go back to the voting booth and run them through again. But these charisms are not the same as talents. Sometimes it will happen that they're the same. But the munus, the liturgy, the charism, you can't say that everyone who has the talent has the charism unless they've been deputed. Are you with me? They may be very good at what they do, but if they have not, they are not the ones chosen, they are not the ones called and the ones commissioned, sent, you can't claim to have the charism. Are you with me? This is with the liturgy as well. We may think that we really do a certain task well, and therefore we should be the ones chosen by the community to do this. But if we're not, we're not. We have a talent. We don't have the charism. We don't have the munus. Are you with me? We've got the talent. There is a personal dimension that enters in. You know, you say, if we look back at the Trinity in a fanciful kind of way, sitting down at a table trying to decide what are they going to do about creation, you know, sinful creation, how are we going to bring them back, you know, whose job is it going to be? And they finally decide it's going to be this, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, huh? And you're going to have to be, take on humanity, take on human nature. The spirit sitting on the side there, what about me, you know? <laughs> I could do that just as well as he does. It doesn't happen, obviously. But what's the point? The son is the one who is chosen, called, sent. 
I'm a canon lawyer. Cardinal Maida has in his archdiocese, oh, I would say at least 15 of his own priests who are canon lawyers. They work in his tribunal. They work in his chancery. I am his canon lawyer. Because I'm better, more intelligent and gifted, more talented than these other men? No. Because he chose me. There's something very personal in that. You might have children. Some of you are old enough to have children. You might have children who are old enough to be professional people. Doctors, lawyers, whatever. They are not necessarily the ones that you choose to be your doctor or your lawyer or your banker or whatever. Because they just don't measure up. Because you choose someone else. Don't you love them? Don't you appreciate their talents? No. You simply choose somebody else. It's very mysterious, but we can do that. No? We want to think for a moment about this church we belong to and the fact that we belong to Jesus, and he established this church, this network of relationships, of persons in relationship with him. And, well, he just chose absolutely the most perfect people, for example, to be his apostles. Right? He chose the ones he chose. If you look at their personal characteristics, sometimes they don't look very elegant. One betrays him. Sells them for 30 pieces of silver, right? We have another one who denies knowing him. Three times. Once wasn't enough. We go on and on with all of the faults and failures of these 12 men, and you say, what do you know about what happened in their life? If they were so very important in the life of the church, why don't you know anything about their history? There were only 12 of them. Do you follow where I'm going? Their successors, we say, are chosen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus intervenes to make sure there is this continuity. And he chooses absolutely the most meritorious, best men to be their followers, their successors, right? Sometimes. Sometimes. It's not a meritocracy. It's not a meritocracy. When we look around the room, I want you to stop and think for a moment. Jesus chose 
me. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. <laughs> you know? It wasn't an accident. It was no mistake. He really wanted you to be a part of his work. And he did it because you were absolutely the best people to be doing that. And thank goodness, no one here has any faults or failures or foibles or anything because, well, you know, it's a big task that we've got to do Saving the world, you know, it's a big responsibility on our shoulders. When we look at the liturgy and see what is happening in this relationship, we can say that the redemption Jesus accomplishes in this world is accomplished first and foremost in him. His task is to help us be who we truly are. What are we? We are expressions of who God is outside of himself. We are expressions of who God is outside of himself. That's a big one. You can chew on that for a whole day. Maybe two. We are the expression of who God is outside of himself. Now, we have a tendency to look at God as uh, being absolute being, as one who makes no mistakes. All that he does is... Good, true, no, perfect. Would like you to like to introduce you to all of his perfect creations, his perfect creatures. Not one of you, not one, was a mistake. However, if we are going to be who we truly are, we find out, number one, because God is absolute, perfect, total, complete, we kind of look around and say, as perfect as we are, we're not. God may be infinite, but we are clearly finite. And if I'm going to be that expression of who God is outside of himself, and I'm finite and he's infinite, well, then I want to be in relation with the rest of you folks because I can't do it alone. I can't be a good expression of who God is outside of himself unless I tie in to your life as well. I can't do it alone. I'm always a finite, ah, perfect, as I am, a finite expression of who God is outside of himself. And therefore not a complete expression, incomplete. I need to be in relation with the rest of creation. 
And if I am going to give God what he deserves in worship, praise, thanksgiving, adoration, glory, huh? if I'm going to do that, I recognize I cannot do it alone if it's going to be complete, if it's going to be adequate. Because the best I can do is my own little finite part. I really need the rest of you. And that happens with Jesus, except that as God himself, when he worships the Father as a man, he brings all of his divinity with that. Nothing, no one of us is left out. He is connected with us in an absolute, radical, divine manner. But we don't have that. But we can buy into it. We can buy into his interior life. By an intimacy with him, which he initiates. Because when he offers his worship to the Father... He brings the whole of his human experience. There is one person who dies on the cross who is God and man. That ultimate act of worship, that complete and total surrender of himself to the Father, that high point of our salvation, well, we can say, it is the high point. It is not the only point of his worship because his worship of the Father began the moment he was conceived in Mary. And it did not finish. The worship that Jesus gives the Father is not complete until he sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. That is, the totality of human experience is being transformed. What was in God's mind for each one of us is for the first time accomplished in Jesus. The whole of our human experience from conception to eternal reward is in him redeemed. The whole of it. That says, when we worship God, if we are going to be tied into the worship that Jesus gives, then it has to be the whole of our life. Do you follow why? Do you understand what I'm saying? Our worship of God if it is going to be together with Jesus, united with Jesus, because his worship begins with his conception and is continuous to his being seated at the right hand of the Father, that is the worship he gives as a man. Are you with me? Then our worship, too, must seek to do the same. Are you with me? That is, we have to bring to Jesus 
the whole of our human experience and begin to put it into God's hands, to offer that to the Father. Are you with me? Does it make sense? Are you wondering what the heck is he talking about? I've introduced the concept of worship you are not familiar with. It, it just, we, we, usually I have a more limited image of worship as praising God or telling him he's wonderful. But if it's going to start at my conception, um, I wasn't talking to him about his glory that I remember at that point. But it, when I give my life to Jesus, that's the whole life, and just the act of putting it before the Father in love is what worship is? Is that what you're saying? Do you follow that? The simple act of presenting the whole of our life to the Father is our worship. You need to say, no, I want to go into this, just the, if, you, if you can hold just one second. Write down the, 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 the question. You just say that. This struck me most profoundly when I have been celebrating the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. Someone in their last hours, last days, last year, I don't know, someone in danger of death. It struck me most in those cases where it was truly the last hours of their life. So I go, and I celebrate the rite, and I anoint them with the oils. Uh, and they're still alive. Now what? Uh, uh, there must be something more that I'm supposed to be doing here, because like... Uh, Well, what's it all about? Here we are, we are before God. You know, this person is suffering. What more are they supposed to do? Now, you can be all around the bed and cheering them on, you know, and giving them the love and going through that experience that is so horrendous, you know, of seeing someone pass from this life to eternal life. It's a terrible thing for us to have to think that they might actually go to eternal life, you know, eternal reward, isn't it? But, but in any event, you say that. What are they supposed to do? Simply give themselves to God. The worship that is being offered now at this point in their life and this is important when you say, well, what was it that was going on in our life every other time when we celebrated the worship of God? Whether the Mass or the other sacraments, you say, it is the choice that we make to give ourselves to God. Unreservedly. And if I do that, then I... I would think, well, I've got to be overcome 
if I have any appreciation of who I am, and you should, because you are God's perfect creation, he doesn't make a mistake. We make plenty, but he doesn't. You say then, thank you. Thank you. You know, like, this life is good. Now, I may suffer. Things may not always go the way I like. I can get my nose really bent out of shape. But you know, when push comes to shove, thank you. I can give God glory. I can give him adoration. But in the end, what is it that I'm doing? I am choosing a particular kind of relationship with him, and that is totally interior to myself. I don't have to make the sign of the cross to do it. Are you with me? I don't have to do that. I don't have to get out of the bed that I am suffering and dying in uh, and run around the house, you know. I don't have to get all the beads and say all the, you know, say the Hail Mary, Our Father, do the rosary. All I have to do is simply choose to give myself back to God. You just say, there must be something wrong here. You say, I must have to be doing something else. You say, Jesus on the cross, suffering and dying. What is his worship of the Father? Into your hands I commend my spirit. I'm all yours, Dad. Coming back home. Huh? You sent me to do this. I've done it. You know, we really want something a lot more complicated. You know, something we get our hands into. You know, like, if you ever made bread, you know, get in the dough there, you know, or you've been out working on the land, you know, and, you know, digging and shoveling the stuff out of the stalls and cleaning up the barn or whatever. You just say, some real work. Now, that would be worship. Except this worship is the free, simple choice to give all we are back to God. Now you have to kind of think about what all, what all am I giving back to him? You know, say, do, do I understand what his message was about that we were talking about earlier and everything. How do I give that all back to him? Well, there are so many things. How do I give my conception back to God? I wasn't around there. No, I was around for it, actually. I can't possibly remember what that was. But it was all part of the gift that is me from God. And there are so many experiences of life, some that we are proud of and others that we are ashamed of. And it's all part of what has made me, me. And I should be offering back to God. And it's those experiences that can be offered, and you say, and they are relationships. Because, you know, 
the people I love most have made me what I am too. They, they've been part of the recipe of Joseph Fox. Someone like Mary Daly over here, our long relationship of 30, 40 years maybe, whatever, you know, say that. Or 20-some years with Chris, you know, say they make a difference. Each of those persons in our lives make a difference. Do we offer that to God? Do we offer those loved ones, those rich? Of course we do. We ask the Father in Jesus to care for them. Huh? We plead on their behalf. We have this tendency as Christians to take responsibility for the whole of the universe, the whole of creation. We are happy to pray for people we have never met before. We are happy to do that as part of our worship. Why? Because when Jesus comes into the world as the Redeemer, his task is to make this creation part of him. To identify with us. To identify with this creation. Because do you know that God cannot worship? The relationship between the persons in God, in the Trinity, is not worship. Because worship is only for the relationship between creatures and the Creator. That's something only creatures can do. So his coming into the world restores the proper relation, the true, authentic relationship that we have with God. It's restored in him. His task, as is the task for each one of us, is to claim the creation we are a part of and to offer that back in relationship to God. We were talking during the break, and you say, some of you are writing notes. They are the expression of who you are outside of yourself. You have all these ideas going on inside and everything else, and you start writing down all these things, and you will go home, and you will tomorrow huh, maybe take them out and take a look at them, and you say, what the heck was he talking about? <laughs> but I want you to know they are your creation. They are your creation. And when they do not respond to you in the way that you put them there so that you can kind of dialogue, it's very disappointing. The relationship, when we talk about worship, worship is giving to God what belongs to him. It is the relationship that creatures have to the creator. Ah, excellent. But Jesus is worshiping God. Huh? The second person of the Trinity becomes man. He takes on a human nature. Now, he can worship the Father as a human being. He cannot worship the Father 
as the second person of the Trinity. He's still the second person of the Trinity, no doubt about it. Isn't it beautiful? Because that means his worship as a man, because he is also the second person of the Trinity, is absolutely perfect and cannot be less. He gets it right all the time. Just being faithful, honest to what he really is. We, being only human, do what we do best, which is finite, limited, not infinite. This is disturbing. I hope you know that. This worship that Jesus gives to the Father, this life of worship. He's saying that we are looking at the life of Jesus in this moment as the entirety of his life is giving worship to the Father. And his task as the Redeemer, as a good human being, is to draw other people into that same worship. He redeems when he is able to convince others to join in his worship of the Father, the kind of worship that sanctifies us too. Do you follow what I'm saying? When we come into the world and we are giving worship to the Father, it's all nice for us if we just keep it between me and God, me and Jesus kind of a thing, you know? But the problem is, it's too isolated. It doesn't reflect who we really are. We are part of a creation. And we really need the rest of that in order to adequately reflect who God is. We do it in an inadequate way, humanly speaking. We need the connectedness to the rest of creation in order to give a complete worship to God. We go through life trying to bring more and more people into that proper relationship with God, which is a worship, a worship relationship. Jesus does that from the moment he comes into this human reality that we are. And he continues that till he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he continues that work by co-opting us, by drawing us into his life and making us his representatives. He does that through baptism, confirmation, holy orders. He makes us his agents. As he is the agent of the Trinity, the one who was drafted and commissioned to redeem, to be the priest, prophet, and king in this world, he comes into the world and starts drafting us, calling us up into service, making us his agents.
Exactly. You say, uh, it's not helpful when they can't hear the good things you're saying. They just say that, I'm saying that we need the rest of creation in order to give a proper worship. We need to be in relation with other people. But even when we do that, it's not complete. Am I say that right? And that's true. Even once, if we're doing it just on our own, you say, incomplete, together with incomplete, together with incomplete, together with incomplete, no matter how many times you put it together, it's incomplete. Do you follow? No matter how many of us sinful, good human beings get together and say, now we're all going to give this worship to God, it's still incomplete. When Jesus does it, it is complete because he is both man and God. He is in relationship both in time and space with everything. He is offering the whole of that human experience back to the Father. But he is now trying to get us to be actively involved in that worship. That's his task, is to create a body that worships the Father in him, in this complete and total way, a body that will share the glory that he has at the right hand of the Father. And he does that by making us his agents. We do it all the time, humanly speaking. We probably could not live life if we did not do that. We use each other. We use each other. You say, honey... Would you get my clothes from the dryer, from the, from the cleaners, you know, the dry cleaning from the cleaners? Will you pay this bill? Will you do this little thing? Will you pick up that? Do this, do that. We do that with each other all the time. Because on our own, we can't accomplish the human endeavor alone. We need to be extended out there into the world and we have more and more of an, of an understanding of that with globalization and everything. It's saying that the world we live in is far more interconnected and interrelated than we ever dreamed of. And our success is dependent on that interrelatedness. It is no less true of our worship. And Jesus makes us his agents by baptizing us, inviting us into a relationship with him, immersing us in the reality of who he is. Do you follow what I'm saying? He makes us his agents. By our baptism, we are changed, humanly speaking. Because of our sinfulness, because we were born into sinful humanity, we do not have the power to worship God in the way that can sanctify us. We don't have the power to do so. We don't have the power to do so. By our baptism, we are changed and given that power. We are given that power to by being enabled to participate in the worship that Jesus gives, by being immersed in him. 
being able to participate in his worship of the Father. It's not a power we have as human beings. Okay, so since we understand that Jesus can worship the Father only as a man, and he is now dead, does that worship still continue? How do we... And if that worship continues, is it simply his presence that makes it continue? Are you with me? We understand the question. When we look at this, we say, we're looking at the human condition again. And we say, we look at that beginning with conception and continuing to eternal reward. Why do I say that? Because we know in faith that we do not cease to be with our death. If we did, and Jesus died, it's over. And St. Paul talks about that very expressly. You know, If there's no resurrection of the dead, huh, we're the most pitiable of all people. Because we have staked our life on the conviction there is a resurrection of the dead that we know from the fact that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. His humanity continues. He continues to be human. So what is he doing at the right side of the Father? Would be the question. He's worshiping the Father. It doesn't stop here. This relationship of worship, the proper relationship that we have with God, the beauty is that we get to continue that in eternity. So... Get to enjoy it now. Like doing that. You know, it's sort of like saying, you fall in love with the woman of your dreams, and now you're stuck with her for the rest of your life. (laughs) Well, what would you want to do in that relationship? All the things that humans do. Huh? Or you say, in the relationship with God, what would you want to do with him? All the things that humans do with God. We get to be us. We don't have to put on a show. We don't have to have a mask. We can just be who we are for the whole of eternity. Forever. It's great. And we're going to start now. And we're going to start now. We're not going to put it off. We're going to do it now. And we're going to let that permeate everything we do. Does it get better than this? That worship relationship 
didn't stop with Jesus' death. And I want to underscore that. His human experience is not completed, is not finished with his death. We will get to meet him in heaven as a human being. Now, I wonder what the things, the questions we might have for him and all the rest of those things and all the interchanges, all this, we'll have the opportunity. But what is important for us to see is that he wanted that to begin now, in our world. He wanted to make it accessible for us. So, out of all of humanity, he has chosen us to be his agents in the world, the leaven in the yeast, that makes this happen now. That brings that redemption in this world. If that doesn't blow you away, please go outside, get yourself refreshed and come back in. (laughs) It's extraordinary. We are invited to make him present and active in the world in ourselves. We get to continue this redemptive work that he began. This is what the Eucharist is about. Do you follow what's happening here? You say, you need to know these concepts. Now, this is not all. Really, we're kind of skating across the pond here. But you need to have some of these concepts before we begin to talk about the celebration of the Mass. Because in the Eucharist, in the Mass, the Eucharist, the, the, the thanks that we give to God, Eucharist is thanksgiving, right? The thanks that is given to God. This is Jesus offering thanks to the Father, showing us what the real relationship of creation is to the Creator. We get to see that in Jesus. He's saying, in that, he has co-opted us to kind of live it out, experience it. And if some of your looks are any indication, like most Masses, You're terribly involved. (laughs) This for eternity? (laughs) Just say, this is is incredible. The, The sad part is that for the most part, when we celebrate the Eucharist, we do it as spectators and not as participants. We kind of peer in there and watch what's going on. And what is going on? You know, there is a, an interesting thing in the Second Vatican Council. In the first document they come out with, Sacrosanctum Concilium on the liturgy, they say that Holy Mother Church earnestly desires that everyone participate in the celebration of the liturgy in a f- full, conscious, active, participation. 
which is required by the nature of the liturgy itself. That when we look at liturgy, when we look at this munus, it requires that we are engaged fully, consciously, actively. Now, in the United States, in most English-speaking countries, this word active is one word, active. It seems to give the impression that what I'm doing up here, moving about, is active. And what you are doing is passive. Right? You're just sitting there. No. There is a Latin word for that. Activa participatio is this outward activity, this movement, if you will. And you've been hearing for the last 30 years at least that you should be actively involved at Mass. That means you should be getting up, sitting down. You should be the reader. The, you should be the um, welcomer. You should be the uh, extraordinary minister of communion. Uh, that you should be doing all these. You should be singing. You should be doing... But the word, in fact, that was used by the Second Vatican Council was not activa participatio. It was actuosa participatio. Now, we just don't have it in English, okay? So I have to explain. Actuosa has to do with the interiority of action. Now, I'm trusting even those of you who very wisely didn't bring a pen are still actively engaged in this workshop. Churning these things in your mind and wondering how heretical I can get before I finally leave. <laughs> and what does this all mean for us? Or me, you know, because it's my favorite topic. That's actuosa participatio. And you don't have to move anywhere. You don't have to go anywhere, folks. That person I described to you the first time I anointed someone in that danger of death, do you think they were not actuosa? Kind of engaged in what was happening? Beyond my wildest understanding and explanation, they were involved. With everything in that moment of life, day by day, hour by hour, everything being taken away, what is left? When I can't even go to the bathroom on my own anymore, when I am being done unto by everyone and all of my powers are slipping away, I am still actuosa. It's still me who is the subject of all that is happening. No one can take that away. And it is only me who can offer that to the Father. No one can do it for me.
when we understand worship in that sense of actuosa participatio, participating in the worship that Jesus gives to the Father, we're going to have a very different kind of worship. Now, it seems to me after the whole morning of going on and on like this, and I can, I can still go on for some more. The question I told you to write down? We're looking for the conscious choice, huh? From conception, right. Okay, how do we cover them? How do we cover them? Huh? This is a question you say. If this is about conscious, participatio, if this is about conscious, active participation in that worship, what about those who just don't have it? That's the question, right? What about that situation? And there's more than one out there. We don't know. I'm very happy and proud to be able to tell you there's things I am not sure about, but there are other things I don't know. We don't know. No, no. It's interesting. There are a lot of people, priests too will tell you this. Baptism of infants. What are you parents doing? You're making the act of faith for your child. Ha! A joke! You cannot make such an act for anyone. For anyone. God cannot do it. How can you? This is why when we look at that actuosa, being the subject of my own activity, God makes that Absolutely sacred. God cannot make an act of faith for me. You can't make an act of faith for me. So what are you doing when you bring your child to be baptized? You are saying, I will do my part so that when my child arrives at that time in their life, they will be able to make the right choice. Now, you do this all the time. You may think that's a, a big deal, and it is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. But you do it all the time without even thinking. Why did you give birth to your children in the United States? Forcing them thereby to be American citizens. Which, if they had their own choice, they clearly wouldn't have made that one.
Is this important to you or not? If it's important to you, then you will communicate to your children from the very beginning, right on through, why you ought to be proud of the good old USA. God bless America. God bless America. God bless America. And my children are going to know that. And they are going to be proud to be American citizens and to serve on her behalf when called upon and to be an active and good citizen. You don't even think twice about it. You need to spend some time overseas when everyone around you is an American. And then to find one that would come along and thank God, you don't care who they are, they're from Kansas or wherever, you know, there's an American. Oh, delivered from my isolation. And we don't feel that way about being Catholics, about being Christians, about being members of the body of Christ. And what you are doing at baptism is saying, you betcha, I am going to make sure that my child so loves Jesus Christ, they wouldn't even think about another option. They'll be so overwhelmed by my conviction, by my love, by my commitment, they wouldn't choose another thing. How do you explain to a parent who was not Christian, who raised you outside of the Christian tradition, that what they did was a bad thing? That what they did was not the right thing? It wasn't? Yeah, you say, parents, oh, oh, well, well, exactly, you know, one thing at a time. I want to respond, you know, I say, <laughs> these are good questions, you know. You say, Clearly, in this situation, you have this, you, I want to presume that parents do the very best they can for the children. Now, we also know that is not the case in every situation. But presuming you have a God-fearing mother and father, and they bring you up outside of the Christian tradition, there are reasons for that ha ha happening, No? The point is not looking at what they did, right or wrong, but what you have discovered and are taking responsibility for. Because all of this worship is going to be about taking responsibility for me. No one can do that. And that's why I say parents, in bringing their child to be baptized are not taking the responsibility away from their children. They are claiming their own responsibility. Now, you hope that you, in a responsible way, can give them an understanding, but they still are responsible for doing that. That consciousness includes the responsibility clause, that I am able to answer the questions about what I do, the choices I make. Exactly. You didn't get there any other way, sweetheart. <laughs> 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 you say, what? 
But you say, it certainly was not my parents who got me here. You say, it certainly was not without them. Oh, hey, me either. You know, I love them. But you say that, you know, you say, we have to see what is happening in these kinds of relationships. You know, you say that God is, and you, you should understand this, but not everyone will tell you, God is in a big conspiracy to save us. Now, don't tell everybody about this, because otherwise the word will get out, you know. But he really is conspiring to save us. He wants us to be happy forever with him in heaven. Why? And it's a very inadequate example, but again, when you take those notes home tonight and take a look at them, and they don't tell you, answer the questions that are running through your mind, but they were certainly adequate when you wrote them down. That's a disappointment. God does not want to have that disappointment with us. He really wants us to be on board, in sync with him. He's got an investment in us. And he conspires to bring us to the fullness of that investment. And your parents were a part of it. They are, you know. Now, not the way they thought, perhaps, but they are. And the question is whether or not you will take responsibility for making sure that they are. It's not about them. It's about you. It's about you. Because if you do what you should be doing as God's creature and you do a really good job of it, then your parents are in some way vindicated for their part in it. Now, their part may not be very big, it may be very small or whatever, but their part will be vindicated. It's not about them, it's about you taking responsibility. And that's what's happening in the Mass. When you look at this, these canons I gave you, 834 is telling us about that munus, it's telling us about liturgy. Okay? As an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus, the priestly function, the priestly munus of Jesus, we get to participate in his munus of sanctifying, his priestly munus, when we celebrate the liturgy, which is nothing less than the public worship, the entire public worship that is the integral whole worship, public worship that Jesus offers to the Father together with us. Are you with me? How do we get called up? If you look at the Second Vatican Council, the document on the church called Lumen Gentium, you will see there is one whole chapter dedicated to the universal call to holiness. Jesus, when he was among us, in the message that he gave, that prophetic message, the gospel, that was supposed to guide the whole of our life, getting us back to eternal reward, he called 
every one of us to be holy as his Father is holy. He called every one of us. That was the draft. Huh? That was when we were called into service. Those who answer the call to become his agents, that they choose to be baptized, accepting that call, they receive the commission then to participate as his agents. The call was there before he came, but he gives the call now as coming from him. The call we heard before in the Old Testament is addressed to God's chosen people, to the Jewish people. The call that Jesus expresses now from the Trinity is a call to everyone. We are all called to holiness. Nothing less will satisfy us, humanly speaking. It's our choice to accept or not that call. When we are invited by Jesus to participate in that, and gratefully, thankfully, many of our parents were able to bring us to that, so we got immersed into that reality from very early on. Others found out about it later. But the call is to be his agent, making Jesus present and active in the world. Present and active as the Redeemer. Present and active giving the worship to the Father that Jesus gives. Are you with me? That baptism was the first deputation that we receive. And it is a deputation. It is a power to participate in Jesus' worship. It is not the power of eligibility. When we were talking about citizenship before, remember, we become citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, but we are not yet eligible for public office. That happens with the sacrament of confirmation. Unfortunately, the way things have developed over the last 50, 70 years, whatever, we have been asking people who are not so empowered, to do public official activities, like being the reader at Mass, like uh, being extraordinary ministers of communion, and so forth. Technically speaking, they need to be confirmed before they do that. Some of the other offices that, are, that many of you would perform, I presume, being a godparent is an office in the church. To be able to do that, you have to be baptized, confirmed, and, having, and have received commun communion. Marriage? marriage is another office that you are receiving a special. You say, it's not always a sacrament. You say, because marriage is a sacrament only when it's between two baptized persons. So if you are married to someone who is not baptized, you still have the office in the church, but it's not a sacrament. Do you follow? It's a complicated thing. I don't want to go in there. I don't want to go there. Confirmation. Confirmation is required to be baptized. Is it required to be 
you will see that, that in the law that that is. But they also, on occasion, let it go. It's unfortunate, but I'm, I'm just telling you what is done versus how it fits in this overall picture. Because we're going back to that matter of choice and a real change occurring because of these sacraments that we receive. By our baptism, we can participate in the worship that Jesus gives to the Father, but that's somehow making his worship mine. You know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to take it, I'm trying to appreciate what it means to be a citizen with the saints, a member of the household of God, giving the worship to God that Jesus gives. Do you follow? That with baptism. I'm a citizen. Okay? But confirmation gives me a further power, and that is to be eligible to exercise a public office in the church. That's different than holy orders, which is going to me, you know, because in baptism I become an agent of Jesus. In confirmation, I can be called upon to be a public agent of Jesus, an official agent of Jesus. But in the sacrament of holy orders, I'm going to exercise a very special kind of representative activity. I am going to be entrusted with the responsibilities of Christ, the head of the church. It will be my responsibility to communicate the benefits of salvation to other people. Are you with me? To celebrate the Eucharist, changing bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ to forgive their sins, to anoint them when they are sick. These are functions of passing on the benefits of salvation that are proper to Christ, head of the church. You say, what are the functions of the head? Well, you know, think of the things around your head here. You know, you got these two orbs right here. They see. That's one of the functions is seeing, hearing, you know, generally, these on most of us ordained people are very small, you know. <laughs> Speaking, oh, you know, we could go on for hours. If you were to kind of do one of those caricatures, you have really big mouth, really small ears, and a walnut-sized brain, you know. But these are all functions of the head. No? So being able to participate in those functions are given by the sacrament of holy orders, where the person acts in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you a legal thing here. I'm giving you all kinds of technical stuff today. A general representative activity we talked about, we do that all the time, is always very limited, you know pay this bill for me, pick up my clothes at the cleaners, or whatever, you know? That's very different than power of attorney. You know what that's all about, don't you? You you know, we get to a certain age, and all of a sudden we know what these things mean. You know, uh, durable power of attorney, you know? The one who can pull the plug on you. I mean, that... They can pay your bills when you're incapacitated and things like this. That means they can go into your money, right? They can sell the house. Well, it's limited power of attorney because it can be limited to what those powers are. But those powers are exercised in the person of the one 
on whom you are acting. Not just a general representative activity. These things you can literally, depending on how extensive the, that power of attorney is, you can sell them out of the house. You can sell them down the river. You know, you can pull the plug. The sacrament of holy orders gives that power to priests, bishops, and deacons in limited ways. They are exercising functions of Christ, head of the church. That's different than the faithful who are baptized and confirmed. And it's rather obvious how it's different. And these are personal choices conferred by the sacrament. When we talk about sacramental character, you probably have read in the catechism, even when you were younger, that it's an indelible mark imprinted on the soul, which is a nice concept. It's a nice little image that doesn't tell you very much. It says it's not repeatable. But if you want to know what the sacramental character is, it is technically, if we, if we were to use the language, an ontological change. That is saying, according to our being humans, we have certain powers. Huh? We can reason, we can choose, we can... We have feelings, you know, we have all these different things that are part of our human powers. The ontological change gives powers that are not part of our being human. And the sacrament of baptism, confirmation, and holy orders gives a power that goes beyond our human abilities. The power in baptism is to participate in the worship that Jesus gives to the Father. It's the foundation for our being able to share in eternal reward. To be able to share in that eternal relationship, the proper relationship, which is worship of a creature to the Creator. In confirmation, the power is given for us to be chosen for official representative activities. And the power that is given in holy orders is to act in the person of Jesus Christ, head of the church. Are you with me? You've just gotten a whole truckload of information. We want to look at this and say, when you look at 834, it's telling you what the munus is, what the liturgy is. When you look at 835, that canon is taken from chapter 5 of Lumen Gentium on the universal call to holiness. We see who is deputed, and the deputation is directly linked with the sacramental character you have received. Baptism, confirmation, holy orders. So looking at this, Canon 835, we see who is deputed. The bishop, the presbyter, the priest, the deacons, and the rest of the faithful. And it mentions specifically married couples. So when we look at the task, the function, you say, what is that task here? It's that of worship when we see who is deputed, married couples are deputed by their baptism, confirmation, and, the, and possibly that of their being 
um, having received the sacrament of, of marriage, otherwise by their fact, the fact that they are married, they are deputed to live their conjugal life in a particular way and care for the procreation and education of their children. Those are their specific acts because we see the person who is deputed and the acts that are to be done. That's saying in this context of 835, your procreating, there are several acts that may come to mind, your procreating and your education of your children is meant to be seen as an act of worship. Your procreating, your, the way you live your, your spousal relationship to each other, and the education of your children is seen as a liturgy, as a public worship, sharing in the public. When you do it uh, in, in the manner that is in keeping with the teachings of Christ in his church. Can you believe that Jesus would really want you to have relations with each other, that those relations would make you holy? They will make you holy, sanctify you, because you are the ones who are deputed. You follow these particular acts that have been ex expressly stated by the church in the way that you relate to each other as husband and wife, and in the procreation and education of your children. Those acts are seen as acts of worship that you join with Jesus in performing. This uh, Canon 835 is about those who are deputed. The acts, remember because we are looking at the task or the function, these acts that are being done by the citizen, by the one who is deputed, we look in each case and say, not everything we do is seen as being liturgy. Although everything we should do, that we do, could be part of our personal worship. That's private worship. The public worship, the worship that Jesus gives to the Father, head and members, all of us together with him, that's liturgy. That's the fulfillment of the munus. And included in that, when you look at this canon here, it says the ones who are deputed are the married. And how do they do it? They do it by their, their spousal relationship to each other, by the procreation and education of their, uh, of their children. Shocking. You probably never heard about that before. I'm sorry we don't explain that clearly enough as priests to people when they are getting married or afterwards even. There are other specific acts. You need to say, not all of my worship. You know, when I pray the rosary, it is my worship. But it is not liturgy. The liturgy is going to be the public worship that Jesus gives to the Father. Head and members, all the members of his church, giving to the Father. That will be the public worship. So when I look at the sacraments and I celebrate the sacraments, when I celebrate Mass, I do something liturgical. Public worship. 
that can sanctify you. My private worship, I still am obliged to do, but it does, it cannot of its own make me holy.